theyeshiva.net. I'm very excited to bring back once again um, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, one of America's premier Jewish scholars in Torah and Jewish mysticism. Rabbi Y.Y. teaches and mentors thousands of people in groups and groups, Jewish and non-Jewish across the globe. He does this in person, lecturing in front of audiences in synagogues, in for he did it in front of the U.S. military, military in the Pentagon, in front of the keynote to the U.S. military chief of chaplains and the NSA, who called him the Jewish Billy Graham. So online, all over the place, he's on YouTube, he's on his own site, he is a popular sought-after guest in other people's venues, and um you're not supposed to say everything that you think about a person in front of their face. Um, but I can say without say, I can minimize the comment by saying that one of the things that people find exceptional about Rabbi YY is that he's just such a nice, wonderful, wonderful, loving person and um, total and very committed, like, you know, very committed in a, if I may say so in a humble way to his own passionate growth, which is his own personal growth, which is probably one of the main reasons why he is one of the most beloved and sought after communicators of Judaism today, again, to people of all backgrounds worldwide. Um, he, his teachings are extremely relevant. If you were, if you know him from before, or if you were at his interview in my previous summit, you can see that his, if you would describe him, one of the words to describe him would be authentic, real, um, in it with you, you know, again, compassionate, God is compassionate and we need to be compassionate and spiritual leadership has to be compassionate. It doesn't mean again, that we blur lines, but where we find our way to those lines in those lines, you know, that how we deal with the traumas that we all have, that takes a tremendous amount of compassion and to be compassionate and a teacher, you have to have integrated a lot within yourself. Enough said of that. Rabbi YY is the founder and dean of theyeshiva.net. That's the word, theyeshiva.net. That's linked up under the video, which is one of the largest online Torah classes in the world today. And by the way, he was one of the first ones out there teaching Torah on that on, online and creating the generating the interest that he did years ago. I think that must have been maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. So at the age of 15, and I do want to say this, and then we'll end the introduction, um, Rabbi Jacobson began to serve on a small team of oral scribes. They were called Cholzrim in Hebrew, people who who would sit by the Rebbe's feet, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's feet, on, in times when he could not, when nobody could write or record Shabbat, the holidays. And that small team would focus deeply on everything that the Rebbe said, do their best to memorize it. So you have to have a pretty amazing memory to do that. And then get together, maybe Rabbi Waiwa, you tell us a little bit about how that worked, and then transcribing everything that they would remember from what the Rebbe said, give it, giving, then giving it to the Rebbe to um, edit and validate and footnote it. And that became the volumes, much of the volumes of the printed discourses of the Rebbe, which are being learned around the world by so many people at this time. So that's enough of the introduction. Anyway, Thank you. For Here we here. are. Here we are. Here we are. So we've had a kind of a hot. Um, it's been very nice. It's been lovely, but it's been a little bit, you know, passionate because we have people here who from all kinds of we always have people from all backgrounds. I know you do as well. But but here we have people specifically coming to hear about prophecy. So we have a lot. We have um, probably in a large number of people who are on the Noahide path, maybe people who are still who are Christians. Jews, 
Torah-based Jews, non not yet Torah, you know, in immersed Jews, and so all kinds. So questions came up. Some of the questions that came up. We're all children of God. We are all children of God. I'm sorry. I don't know why my iPad is doing that. That's somebody I don't even know. Uh-uh. What do I do about that? Sorry. Okay. Anyway, so some of the questions that have come up that people still have are people want to know more. People want to understand more about the differences. Um, this is not the only questions that people have. And I know our topic is healing in the future of mankind. So I, I, if you don't mind, I would like to just ask you to just give us just to start by giving us just a little sense of how that worked as a as a as a choser of the Rebbe. How, how did you how did you your team absorb, remember, like anything you would want to tell us to bring us a little bit into that inside so people understand sure. what the transmission was like? Sure. So I was born in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York in 1972. And I grew up at the feet of one of the foremost thinkers and leaders of world Jewry, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneier, Sindel Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was born in 1902, passed away in 1994. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had a very interesting and colorful life because he was raised in Tsarist Russia. Remember, 1902, Russia is under the Tsar, the last Tsar, Nicholas II. Mm. And in 1917, he and his family, like all the Jews living there, observes the Bolshevik Revolution following the First World War in 1914. And he refers to, he referred to that era in his life at some points in his talks and letters, and he sees the communist revolution from which he and his father and his family suffers a lot. Ultimately, his father is arrested and sent to exile where he falls ill and he dies in 1944. Then the Rebbe leaves the Soviet Union in 1927 and moves to Berlin, where he is now studying in Berlin and is there during the Nazi takeover of Germany and the appointment and selection and election of uh, where Adolf Hitler becomes the Fuhrer of Germany. And then the Rebbe leaves to Paris and he's there till 1941 when Hitler occupies France and ultimately escapes on the last boat that makes it to the United States of America in June of 1941. So he was a person who integrated within his own personal journey the tremendous upheavals and revolutions of his era. And then ultimately in 1950, he assumed the leadership of what's known as the Chabad movement after his father-in-law passed away. And he led it until he fell ill and he passed away in 94. Now the Lubavitcher Rebbe had an extraordinary mind and also an extraordinary heart. And he would share, he would talk almost every Sabbath, every Saturday, and it was ours. And as you know, Torah observant Jews don't, tape on Shabbos, so there were no recording devices. We don't write, and we don't record. So there was no tape recorders. Then it was tape recorders. Today it would be MP3 recorders, or your phone recorders, or video cameras, but there was nothing like that. So everything had to be remembered. So from day one, and this already dates back hundreds of years, to the early Hasidic masters, there were a group of people who served as human tape recorders. <laughs> and their job was, I'm laughing, it wasn't so funny, it was hard work, but this was okay. very interesting. For hours, would, hour, hours, every hours. Yeah, right? it's hours. not like he gave no, a no, sermon of eight minutes. If he gave an eight-minute sermon, you know, rabbis are told you give an eight-minute sermon and the beginning has to have a joke 
the end has to have a joke and you need a story in the middle. So it's not so hard to remember. But the Rebbe, these were hour-long talks and presentations of Habrengen, which means a gathering in Yiddish, can last anywhere between three hours and eight hours. There were times that they went even longer. And these were intense presentations. There can be a presentation for an hour about profound Kabbalistic mystical insights into the system of the cosmos and the science of the soul and qu- spiritual quantum physics. It can be an hour-long presentation on Talmud, Talmudic law, on Jewish philosophy, psychology, spiritual spirituality, science, physics, contemporary events, pedagogy, education, issues connected to Israel or to the Jewish world or to humanity in general, studies in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the portion of the week or the holiday, studies in the Zohar, the foundational Jewish mystical text, Hasidic spirituality, and the contemporary applications. So. In the later years, my brother, who you had on, 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 on the program, my older brother, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, he was part of that team. And when I was young, he brought me in on that team. The head of the team was a man named Rabbi Yoel Khan, who passed away one year ago, actually, last August at the age of 91. And he headed the team. He was a brilliant, brilliant scholar. And he would bring in a few people to help him. So I was the young, from the younger ones on the team, joined the team in the last years of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings. And our task was to stay attuned and to try to internalize, memorize, and really hold on to every word, every syllable, every expression, and the structure. And then after the Sabbath or the holidays, sit and transcribe these talks and then publish them. And I would say that it was uh, extremely difficult, extremely difficult. It was excruciate, it was an excruciating job because it took, you know, it took, <laughs> took so much energy out of you. On the other hand, it was extremely rewarding for me and for the entire team because in many ways we felt that it was history in the making because Lubavitcher Rebbe was one of the greatest minds and souls of the generation. And he would communicate these pearls, these pearls of infinity these pearls of divine wisdom from the tradition of Torah all the way back to Moses. And we knew that if we do not hold on to it, it's going to be lost forever. So it's like you're standing in the presence of greatness and you know that history is almost dependent on you. It's like Moses at Sinai is giving a sermon. And if you're not going to record it, he's not going to say it the next Sabbath. The next Saturday is going to be new ideas. It was a very, very precious, even though a very, very intense uh, experience. How successful were you, your group, do you think? And like, if, if we learn a text from the Rebbe, how, I mean, I know it's edited usually, but how much do you think you were able to capture close to word for word or at least sentence by sentence? It's a very, very good question. How accurate was it? So I don't think anybody ever captured word for word verbatim. It was not possible. Um, during the weekdays, it was possible because there was right. a recording. So right. you could simply record the words. And he have every single word. But on Sabbath and holidays, when he would speak most, he wouldn't do it usually during the weekdays. Most of his addresses were on the Saturday or on Jewish holidays. Very, I don't think we ever captured it word for word, but I would say that uh, 80, 90% of it was a, an accurate depiction and description of what the Rebbe said. I think quite a few points were forgotten, probably sometimes 5%, maybe 10%, maybe a little more, especially in my years, the last years of the Rebbe's life, he changed the way he spoke. 
In earlier years, he spoke in a much more elaborate and structured fashion. In the last years, the Lubavitcher Reb spoke more in brevity, but in one presentation, he could talk about a hundred topics, but much more briefly. So your mind literally knew you're going from every 10 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes, you can change the topic. So it became much more difficult to retain the full quantity and quality of the information. But I, but I would say for the most part, for the most part, 80, 90% of it was a fair, accurate uh, description of what the Rebbe said. Certainly some details and nuances were forgotten. And another point is the ideas were very profound. So sometimes not everybody understood the ideas in the same way. The team themselves would sometimes get into very fierce arguments reminiscent of Talmudic debates. This is what he meant. No, this is what he said. This is what he meant. Jose Rabiel Khan, who was a brilliant mind, he sometimes got very agitated at some of the youngest students. And he'd go, eh! he would go, eh! you don't know what you're talking about. It would sometimes get, it was with love, but it was a very heated debate. Did he mean this? Did he mean that? Did he mean that? Did he mean that? So sometimes different writers actually captured the ideas in different ways because, you know, remember, we don't hear the words themselves. We all have, as we know in science, everything we hear is filtered through our own brain and our own ears. So it's basically, you're not hearing the information itself. You're hearing how your brain is processing the information. So sometimes two writers would write down the same talk and you would see that there was somewhat of a different understanding. But as I said, uh, from a more general point of view, I think most of it was, uh, we at least tried to the best of our ability to capture at least a fair amount. Would 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 you say, do you think it would be fair to say that you had supernatural help? To remember more than you would have been able to remember in your life otherwise, or it seems like you must have. You could do eighty or ninety percent. Um, well, multi-hour deep, hot off the divine press. You know, I think I think certainly there was a tremendous. Out of the word supernatural, I, I, I would not use that word here. I don't feel comfortable, but it was certainly the commitment of the people was so deep and so profound that I'm certain that God's grace assisted us in the process because there was a lot of, you know, there's a famous expression in the Talmud that um, which means when somebody comes to be cleansed and to cleanse others, there's a special grace from heaven that helps us. And I think this was a very genuine commitment from people who really wanted to communicate the spiritual wisdom to the world, knowing yeah. how precious it is and how valuable it is. So there was certainly divine assistance they, they, you're, yeah, you were partners really in in bringing, in bringing being channels for this revelation of you know. The yeah, Torah. and and the key and the key word is a channel. Sorry, the key, word, the, the key word is a channel, being a channel, because the people ask often, "How do you remember? How do you remember hours?" I'm like, "Okay, I'm telling you, it wasn't a ten minute presentation. You're talking about hours and hours and hours." People fall sometimes asleep. the Jewish <laughs> holidays. Not in the group would fall asleep. Sometimes <laughs> Jewish holidays sometimes go through the weekend. Like you can have, let's say, a holiday like Simchat Torah. Yeah. For those of you who are familiar, there's the eighth day of Sukkot could be Thursday, and the ninth day Simchat Torah Friday, and then it's Sabbath. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe would often have four three days. So you really had to remember between ten and fifteen hours of presentations. So it was a very, very profound uh, task, but the commitment was extraordinary. And we really felt 
that here are gems that can enrich the world. It's yeah. I just you know you're you're, you're you have a way of making things sound simple, but the truth is that this is the Torah that is coming down live. That that would be called. I've seen the Rebbe call it from the to- time of the Balshemto Torah Soar, Torah Toshel Mashiach. This is redemptive Torah. Yes. Coming so that was that was the, the uniqueness. Yeah, the uniqueness of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings is, I always define his teachings as Torah Sagu'ula. Right. It's the teachings of Gu'ula, redemptive consciousness. There are teachings that are based on exile consciousness, and there are teachings that are based on redemptive consciousness. There are different types of teachings. For example, we have in our tradition that Jacob, when he escaped his brother Esau, before he, went, he left Israel, and he went to Mesopotamia, Southern Iraq, northern, southern Turkey, northern Iraq. And he spent there many years, 20 years, by the, his uncle Laban. This is part of the book of Genesis, Vayetze. But we have a tradition that he spent 14 years studying in the yeshiva of Shaman Aver. The question is what he was doing there 14 years. Why couldn't he study it from his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham? And one of the beautiful answers that was given by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and others is because he knew the Torah of the Holy Land, but he had to learn the Torah of the diaspora. Mm. He, had to, he knew how to be a Jew in the Holy Land, but how can you be a Jew outside of the Holy Land? So 14 years he studied and mastered the art of cultivating spirituality and divine intimacy outside of your organic native land. In many ways, for many generations, we have learned the teachings of how to be connected to God in a state of exile and persecution, which was so important because we're a people who went through the worst of times and the best of times and endured and survived and thrived and became an example to so many people of how to maintain your identity during difficult times. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the post-Holocaust era focused very much, he said, in our generation, we need to teach mankind that we need to teach ourselves How do we cultivate a redemptive consciousness? How do we cultivate a consciousness of a life where you can be successful and happy and integrate everything into your body and into your mind and into your soul? How do we introduce and help the world usher in an era of unity and of harmony? Because that's what humanity is craving for. You know, sometimes we can get too content on dealing with persecution and suffering But the question is, ultimately, our calling is to emancipate ourselves from trauma and to be able to find the healing energy. And his teachings were characterized by that. And don't take it for granted, because the Rebbe was somebody who survived all the wars and the Holocaust and lost much of his family. And people from that generation, for good reason, had so much trauma in them that naturally when they taught, it was a result from trauma. We have to give them credit. We know our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, some of them were in Auschwitz, some of them were in other camps of the Germans or in Stalin's gulags. And the fact that they can even survive and rebuild families was a miracle of miracles, but they were not freed from the terrible, terrible emotional devastation that they have witnessed in their own lives. And I, I would say one of the miracles of the Lubavitcher Rebbe was, I heard him speak for many, many years, is, Although he came from that world and he mourned for the decimation of that world, but week to week, his message was completely not defined by trauma. His message was not even defined by nostalgia. 
as so many from his generation. His message was completely defined by the future, by a yeah. forward sense of optimism and joy, and many people couldn't relate to it. They wanted more than nostalgia and, you know, a certain negativity and sadness. And the Rebbe did have a tinge of, of broken. The Rebbe had a brokenness because of everything he saw. But nonetheless, his message was infused with the idea that we are not victims, that the world is on a progressive march towards redemptive consciousness, and that humanity is seeking oneness. And that today we each have an opportunity to be a channel and an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and redemptive consciousness. And in that sense, his teachings had that sense of vibrancy and freshness that are uniquely relevant to our milieu today. So true. There's a little, now and then you'll go into a little bit of a static or garble. I don't know if you have a microphone. Do you have a microphone on you or are you just talking into the computer? Me? Yeah. I have a mic, yeah. So you might want to move it a little bit, maybe a little far. I don't know much about it, but sometimes when you move your hand, it starts creates oh. static. I think that's what's happening. Okay. So I just had one more one more question about that, and maybe you, you probably can't answer it, but I just wanted to pose it anyway. It's interesting that very interesting that as you said, the Rebbe would speak most of the time on these long holidays or on the Sabbath um, when it specifically couldn't be recorded, and there had to be a reason for that. And I'm wondering if. And then you said that every, you know, there was sometimes hot debate about each person having a different take yeah. on that. I'm wondering, and then you talked about the Torah of the diaspora um, and, and, you know, studying the yeshiva of shame and Aver in order to learn how to maintain, bring and live Torah in the diaspora. I'm wondering if the fact that it had to go through you, all of you, your group, Chosrim, was intentional, that it should run through the minds of various human beings and come out in a way that, would be suitable to the oh absolutely yeah yeah absolutely absolutely in fact in fact people in the early years Lubavitcher Rebbe assumed leadership of Chabad in 1950 the tradition of his predecessors was they wrote most of their teachings on their own right. so people were pleading with the Lubavitcher Rebbe that he himself should transcribe all of his talks but the first Rebbe of Chabad, the author of the Tanya, did not do it. And the last one, the seventh, the Rebbe, both of them did not do it. Everybody in between did. It's interesting. Wow. Chabad had seven Rebbes. Begins with Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, who was born in 1745 and passed away in 1812. He is the author of the classic spiritual work known as the Tanya and the Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch Harav, and many other works. So those he wrote on his own. But most of his teachings he did not write. He had students and relatives, a brother, a child, a grandchild, and disciples who wrote it. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe also, in our generation, he did not write, most, some he wrote, but usually he did not write his own teachings. And I think part of it was, he would say he doesn't have time, he has so much, so many burdens, but I think, and uh, actually my brother shared this with me many years ago, he concurred with this idea that he really wanted to train a generation to think on their own. Part of redemptive consciousness is you can't just be a disciple. You have to be a leader. Every person is a leader. In fact, one of the great prophecies of Jeremiah talking about prophecy is there will come a day. The prophet says there'll be a day. Nobody's going to be teaching anybody else because everybody's going to know me directly from young to old, which means there's a direct intimate relationship between every person and God. 
Ultimately, every person is a prophet. Every person is a conduit. If not, you would have not been created. There's something that you have to channel into this world that nobody else can. Something that I have to channel into this world. In fact, there's a scene with the first Jewish leader, Moses, the scene in the book of Numbers, a very moving scene. Two people start prophesying, Eldon and Medad. And Joshua becomes very upset. He's very agitated. In fact, he tells Moses, put them in prison. You know, they're creating a rebellion. They're, they're usurping your position. And Moses responds, I think it's one of the most moving statements in all of the Hebrew Bible. I love saying it in Hebrew, and then I'll translate. Moses tells Joshua, Are you becoming jealous for me? My wish is that the entire nation becomes prophets, that God confers his spirit on every single one of them. I am not upset when two people start prophesizing. I would love to see millions of prophets. I would love to see every child, every woman, every man to be a, become a prophet. Because in the ultimate vision of Judaism and of spiritual wisdom, it's not never about certain people owning, owning the light or owning the power. Because if it's divine light, it's infinite. So then we're all part of it. If it's suddenly, you know, if we go back to animal farm, you know, we're all equal, but some of us are more equal than others. <laughs> and we're not dealing, then we're dealing, you know, with, 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 with uh, Stalinism and, and, and Marxism and Trotskyism and Leninism. We're not dealing with real spiritual lights. Real spiritual light, there's no, I own it, and you will surrender to me. And by surrendering to me, you're going to get that light. Even if I'm not a cult leader, even if I'm a good guy and a genuine guy, it's still not the real, real ultimate reality. Yes, we all need teachers and we need mentors and we need people to guide us and we all need support systems. But in the ultimate vision of Judaism, it's never about control. It's about helping people find how they themselves are channels. In our last session, I just want to tell you, Schiffer, that one of the greatest pieces, parts of one of the greatest pieces of feedback I got from our last program together was a line. When you asked me, you said, so the Jewish people are the chosen people. What about everybody else? And I said to you, and I meant it because I think it's very true. The Jewish people were chosen to teach every person that he or she was chosen. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to live through life and not realize that you were chosen. Just think that I'm a random mutation. You know, I'm just a mistake and I'm some insignificant infinitesimal droplet on the surface of infinity amounting to nothing and ending up as fodder for the worms. And the Jewish people were chosen to teach every person that he or she was chosen and really to teach every creature that every single one of them constitutes an indispensable place and note in the cosmic divine symphony. So in the ultimate spiritual reality, it's never about one person controlling the wisdom. It's never about that. If it's real infinity, it belongs to all of us. That's what infinity means. Infinity means that it encompasses and it includes everybody and everything. So I think part of the Rebbe's method of teaching and pedagogy was, this is not my wisdom that I'm going to write and I'm going to transcribe and I'm going to publish and you'll give me the credit for it. No, it has to be a joint effort and a partnership. I'll teach, but you need to remember it. And it has to it has to be channeled through your brains and your hearts yeah. with your mistakes and with your flaws. Right. And, and he was And you have to figure it out this. together. <laughs> and the truth is that I think, and that's why it's an interesting thing. The Rebbe passed away of 30 almost uh, 1994. So it's all it's 20, it's what is it, 28 years 28. ago. And nonetheless, you see that his influence has not waned. On the contrary, his influence has grown. It's something very unique. And one of the reasons is. 
because he did not train students. He trained leaders. Right. He created leaders. When you create students and followers, so as long as you're there to lead, it's very, very, you're very influential and it's very impressive. The Rebbe always insisted on creating leaders, people who will take responsibility, people who will think for themselves, people who will take initiative, people who will continue the revolution and not just mimic and not just comply and not just be obedient, but use their own creativity and resources. And it's another interesting thing people don't realize. Lubavitcher Rebbe created the very well-known Chabad movement. It has today 5,000 centers throughout the world. He never, ever visited even one of them throughout his entire tenure, more than 40 years. Go visit a school, a synagogue, a camp, a mikveh, a kindergarten. Get a little nachas. This is your franchise. Nor did he legally own any of it. None of it. He created complete decentralization. Yes, there are the central offices that are, you know, help out and make sure there's no chaos, etc., and the Rebbe sent inspiration and sometimes support to all of that. But ultimately, everyone was on their own. This wasn't a random mistake. It is because he wanted to unleash the creativity in each one of his students and disciples. And there's no creativity like the one that comes when you know that it's your baby. You know, when I, when something is my baby, I think about it 24 hours a day. If I'm just working for you, it's not going to not gonna bring out the same creativity. So this was a general theme of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I think part of Gaula consciousness. We want to empower individuals to take responsibility because every one of us is a leader and every one of us is a prophet in our own way. Yeah, I want, it, I want to talk more about that. But first, I just want to ask you more about leadership, like this idea. I've also, also often thought that, that this decentralization is, you know, we, the Torah leaders, not just the Rebbe, but leaders in pretty much every group, the, you know, the, the old guard has gone away and there's so few leaders and that's part of this generation, right? Decentralization is the name of the game today. Grassroots, grassroots awakenings. Grassroots, when you look for leadership, I mean, even look in the United States of America, look in Israel, look in other countries, right? And you'll see, and even people that a few years ago, they, they, they personified a certain form of leadership. You see that in recent times, leadership has disintegrated, sometimes to a point of embarrassment and shame. This and it's, you can get depressed, you can get depressed, but the Rebbe's message was, no, today leadership is very, very much connected with every single individual. You're looking for a leader? Look in the mirror. You don't see? Look again. You still don't <laughs> see? Look deeper and look harder. Wow. And find who you are, and you will find that spark of leadership inside of you. So I want to ask you just to speak. There, there's some questions, and there's so much to talk about. But I, I want to ask you just to speak a little bit about the how you define the balance or advise other people to define the balance. When a person takes leadership in this decentralized era, um, that means taking risks, right? That means doing things that you don't have a precedent for necessarily. You don't have complete agreement or even maybe majority agreement on those things. I'm yeah. sure that you have experienced that in your own life. So how do you, how should people interpret that? And I, and I, just another little piece of this, when we have people from all backgrounds, some of the questions that I don't know about this for this call, um, but in previous calls, you know, questions about Christianity and what's 
you know, what the Torah says about this and doesn't say about that and why and everybody's role and is everybody included? So everybody's included. That's, you know, that's without a doubt. But if we take Torah as the guideline and we don't want to transgress something, let's make that assumption. And yet our leaders are not present for the most part. And that's by divine providence that we are meant to take to be leaders. So how do we navigate that risk? You know, our own insights and intuition against the absolute truth in the Torah. How do you do that? And how do you, if people are serious about that path, how would you suggest they do that? Yes, it's a wonderful question. And I have to say that for me, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was an extraordinary example for that type of synthesis. So Mm -hmm. I really, I always saw him as such a role model because on one hand, extremely creative person and a leader in the fullest sense of the word, a visionary, always had his finger on the pulse of the youth. That's Mm -hmm. where leadership always is personified most. If you have your finger on the pulse of the youth, because that's the tomorrow, that's the future, that's the energy. There was once a very famous Jewish holiday called Simchat Torah, when we take the Torahs and we dance with them. A very festive Jewish holiday. And by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, this was the favorite holiday. It would be synagogue legally could only contain 2,000 people, but there were 10,000 people. Don't tell the authorities. There were 10,000 people there. It was an incredible, incredible festive moment. And uh, there was once uh, an Israeli uh, professor there who's a thinker, and he was secular. And he told the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he's very impressed with how many people come to celebrate Judaism. He thought Judaism is dead. The Rebbe said something very interesting. He said, look around and see most people here are young. They're young. That's the key. The key is the youth. So on one hand, he had that tremendous sense of creativity and freshness and looking forward. But on the other hand, Lubavitcher Rebbe, for me, he represented that conviction to always remain anchored, anchored in the um, traditions and in the absolute moral code of the Torah. And even though the Torah itself needs to be applied in every generation based on the unique challenges and gifts of that generation, but there's certain profound divine truths that the Torah embodied from the Rebbe's perspective that he always remained anchored in. And I think this is a combination that all of us need in our own way, whichever tradition you're from and whichever, whichever you know, people you come from, those who just throw away the entire past and say, you know, let's just go with the new energy, with the new vibe, often detach themselves from the roots that allow the branches and the leaves and the flowers to grow so beautifully. Imagine a leaf summons me from the tree and says, you know, I don't want to be connected to my roots. I'm a free spirit. Get me off this tree. And I pluck the leaf off the tree. (laughs) And the leaf indeed is free, but tomorrow I see it near the sewage because ultimately it loses its life. So this is a very delicate combination. On one hand, you want to grow tall and you want to grow splendid and you want to maximize your potentials and you want to flex your muscles and you don't want to remain stuck in the quagmire of other people's expectations. That's the call of the hour. But on the other hand, we have to know if the roots are what allow me to get the new to get the nutrients and the photosynthesis that I need. So detaching myself from my roots will not make me more creative, will not make me more of a leader. And that's why it's very important for people to have support systems, mentors, teachers, advisors, 
people who can show us a different perspective, people who can disagree with us. The worst thing for a leader is arrogance. The moment a leader tells me, you know, there's everything there is to know, I know. You can't trust such people. If a rabbi tells me, everything there is to know about truth, I know. That's not a rabbi I'm going to hang out by. If a doctor tells me, everything there is to know about medicine, I know. That's not my doctor. And if a therapist tells me, everything there is to know about the human brain, I know. Well, I'm not going to take you as my therapist. The hallmark of real leaders is humility. The knowledge of how much I don't know. The knowledge that infinity always keeps us all humble. The moment a scientist or a physicist or an expert in any area becomes arrogant and smug and complacent, you're completely detached from the energy. So that's why we always want that combination and that synthesis of, yes, be gutsy and be courageous and be audacious, but remain humble. And part of humility is, do you have a support system? Do you have people who give you honest feedback? Do you have people who can disagree with you? You know, that's why marriage is such a sacred institution in Judaism. There's no institution that keeps people as humble and balanced and human like the institution of marriage. We can all have friends and we can have Very therapists good. and the good, but, but right. I, I'm married. I'm married. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. There's nobody who tells you the your truth kids like grow your up. wife. You'll there's see nobody another who tells you the truth like your wife. And there's nobody who demonstrates the truth to you like your kids, especially when they become teenagers. And that is what makes people human and humble. And you know what? That's essential for growth. <laughs> Truth. But, you know, on the other and on the other hand, what would you say to people who are taking leadership? Everybody here is at least exploring a connection to the Torah as the ultimate divine blueprint um, and source of truth. But people who take leadership have to take risks. <coughs> and the Rebbe sent out, as you said, he, he sent people out to do things on their own initiative. So what do you think is God's perspective, the Rebbe's perspective? What's your perspective on taking risks, making mistakes? It's a big fear that people have, especially when people really believe, you know, they really want to serve God and they really want to do the right thing. And the fear of doing, I I once heard somebody actually, um, a rabbi say that the worst thing, the best thing to do is the right thing. The second best thing is the wrong thing. The third best, the worst thing is nothing. So, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. It's a real thing. And you're, you know, you've created leadership in your own right and and people people are drawn to your to your you know your teachings of Torah and you because of it and what did you have to disconnect from or what risks did you have to take whatever you're willing to share and and what is your thought and you know your take on um making- sure. yeah I'll just say there's a beautiful there's one of the great uh, medieval Jewish commentators and philosophers was a man named Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra he was a Spanish sage and poet and philosopher and astronomer, very interesting person. He lived in the, in the 12th century in Spain. And he asks a question, why is it that the first Jewish leader, Moses, didn't grow up among Jews? He grew up among Gentiles. He grew up in Pharaoh's palace. You know, usually we like homegrown potatoes, homegrown tomatoes. A leader should grow up among the people. And one of his explanations is that if Moses would have grown up among Jews, he would have developed a slave mentality. Wow. He needed to cultivate a revolutionary spirit. And for that, he had to grow up in aristocracy. Only because he grew up in Pharaoh's palace did he have the mindset to be able to overthrow the oppressive regime of Pharaoh and liberate and emancipate the Hebrew slaves only because he didn't grow up among his people. And therefore, he could think 
in a broader fashion. When I saw that commentary, I'm like, we got it. We got it. This is what it means. It's not about taking risks just so that I should be able to take risks and you should see risks and say them gutsy. It's really about opening up your mindset to a larger vision and asking myself, am I being guided by the traumas that are embedded in me? Am I being limited by the expectation of others and the need for social conformity? That's really what it's about. And every one of us has to challenge that. In terms of, you ask about in terms of my own life, I'll tell you, be very honest with you. I often speak and I often teach and I sometimes speak about topics and things and I'll get feedback that is sometimes not very uh, sure. <laughs> constructive or heartwarming. There's often by backlash. I mean, I'll give you one example. Around 15 years ago, I started to speak very openly about child abuse in our communities, sexual molestation. This was not something that was spoken about. Like in so many other communities, this was something that was under the rug. And not, o- not only because of malicious reasons, because of many rabbis and principals and educators who didn't know better. They were ignorant. Like I was ignorant once upon a time. And I started to talk about it a lot. I wrote about it. I lectured about it. And I can't tell you the, about the, the back, backlash and the feedback was often very, very tough and very, very intense. People destroying families started to accuse me that I'm destroying families and destroying perpetrators. And how could you believe kids? What do they know about what happened? And here is a distinguished person and he's going to end up in prison because of you. And this kids won't be able to get married. And, you know, these were serious, serious accusations. And yet I have heard enough and seen enough to know in my gut that what was happening was a crime against humanity. Perpetrators were getting away with horrible, horrible, horrible stories of abuse. And there was nobody speaking out against them. And the reason is because the children were shy and frightened. And when somebody is abused, the first thing that gets destroyed is their belief that they matter because sexual abuse is a form of emotional murder. I'm just giving you one example, but I knew that if if we as a people will not stand up to this crime, then all our talk about God and all our talk about Torah and about love and about redemption and about unity is not worth the paper it's written on. It's all a lie and a bluff because if we don't see our first task to protect the vulnerable among us, especially children who don't have a voice and don't have a mouth, if that's not going to be our task as rabbis, as teachers, as principals, as pedagogues, as leaders, and then we're just a bunch of, we're, we're just a corrupt group using God to make a living. Oh my gosh. So, so I think in every time, in every generation, that's always our task to ask ourselves, what is our mission? What is our goal? There's a famous injunction in the Bible. Do not stand idle when the blood of your friend is flowing. One of the first statements of God to Cain is the blood of your brother screams out from under the earth. The blood of your brother screams out from under the earth. And that's a question every single one of us has to ask. What are the injustices that we are afraid to speak about? What are the crimes, implicit or explicit? Or today, for example, in our education, here's another example, our educational system today. Our educational system today is run by many people who mean well and who have a lot of self-sacrifice 
and some of them who do an unbelievable and marvelous job day in and day out with not getting paid a lot. But the fact is a tremendous percent of our youth goes through our educational system and suffers what's called developmental trauma. A huge percentage of them comes out feeling deep down unworthy, uncelebrated. Many of them who go through an educational system, even with good people around them, often feel that they are not being celebrated. This is a very serious challenge. Now, some people say, this is the way it is. Just comply and just get through it and just offer help. That's not a voice of leadership. That's not a voice of what God wants from us. God wants from us to make sure that every single child is celebrated, that every single child goes through an educational system and emerges with a feeling that I am indispensable to God's plan, that my music that I have to contribute, nobody before me and nobody after me has to contribute, be able to give them that inner confidence that they can trust their emotions, they can embrace their emotions, they they can be comfortable with their emotions, they can know about their true divine light that shines inside of them. And we have to address real challenges and real problems despite the resistance. This is, I mean, this is so... You know how many people, there's been somebody, I met somebody, he's a friend of mine, comes over to me the other day, says, you know, Rabbi Waiwa, you're a good guy, but can you stop talking about trauma? Every trauma, 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 everything is trauma, trauma, right? And I'm just giving you an example. This person also has trauma. trauma. He, just doesn't know, he just doesn't know, doesn't know about it. <laughs> he doesn't know about it. You know, we, 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 it's so easy. It's so easy to live in a world of ignorance. And if I live in a world of ignorance, it's so easy to judge other people and not realize what people who suffer from trauma are going through. And I'm not blaming them. I just see the ignorance when we're uneducated. Just like things that I'm unenlightened about, educated, it's so easy to pass judgment. And it's time for all of us to realize how much we don't know and to be students of life, to learn about things, to open ourselves up. There's so much information out there. There's information today that God has given us like never before and tools for healing that he has given us like never before. But we need to open ourselves up to it. And the first prerequisite is humility. Humility, humility. The Rebbe's, one of the favorite words in Has- among Hasidic masters was the word bittel. Bittel means open yourself up to a truth that you have not yet integrated. That's a calling of every person in a position, whether you're a parent or a leader or a rabbi or a teacher or a pedagogue from the Jewish faith or any other faith. This is the key, key, key to growth. Can I open myself up to parts that I was unaware of? The moment I start believing that I mastered it, I am I far from truth and I, I can't really help people. I, I want, it's amazing. I want to ask you specifically just to go back in that. Um, so standing up for truth and standing up for new systems against old trauma-based systems, that's huge. But it's even huger, the first example that you brought up, because when people told you, and I'm, I'm asking this, like I'm putting, thank you for being willing to do this, because I, I really want everybody to hear from your own experience that there is true risk in leadership. And I don't even have a clue how you navigated it. Like when people said to you, 
you know, you're going to destroy a family, you're going to destroy a, a person's life, an educator, you know, you're going to trust a word of, these are real things. They're real they are. cosmic risks. How did you navigate that in a way that, that you were, how did you, how did you do that? How, how, how did you navigate that? It's just, I can't, it's incomprehensible to me, even knowing some stories, you know, friends who had stories, whatever. I always felt, you know, terrible for the family of the perpetrator. And I don't know what in that position, it's like, you can't help, but harm somebody. Right. Right. So it's extremely important. And I have guided many of my students and colleagues. I said, the moment we're overtaken by vengeance and the need for revenge and anger dictates our moves, we have to be very, very careful with ourselves. In other words, the moment I am not aware of the risks and I'm not aware of how sensitive every statement and every action is, then I'm not entitled to deal with these situations. If somebody is with a gun and going from school to school to school and every week taking down one child with their gun, the person may be a father and a grandfather, the person may have eight children, the person may even be a wonderful father, but nobody in their right mind is going to say, that we cannot report him to the police because what's going to happen with his wife and what's going to happen with his kids. And therefore, the children should be shot every week in school because he has a family. The blame for his fate is on him, not on the children who are being murdered. A few months ago in Israel, there was a man who was considered one of the top children therapists in Israel. He was one of the most successful publishers of children's books in the Orthodox community in Israel, in Hebrew, and in other languages. It turned out that he was raping and molesting numerous of his clients, boys and girls, and even women, and even married women. But because he was in such a position of leadership and influence, so they were sending all the problems to him. So he was the one who was the expert on who should be summoned to the, who should be, prosecuted, who should not be. And it turned out that he was one of the greatest criminals. And they knew about this 20 years ago, but it was hush-hush. And then recently, more and more women started to speak out. And there were courageous rabbis who began talking about it. And ultimately, this man by the name of Chaim Valder shot himself. Where did he shoot himself? In a graveyard, in a cemetery near the grave of his son, who died, unfortunately, a few years ago. And he wrote a note how in heaven he's going to summon these rabbis who accused them of rape. He's going to summon them to heavenly court because he was innocent. Now, when he died, when he killed himself, people didn't know what to do. And some people said, you can't gossip about him. He's dead. The problem is that you had so many people who were hurt by him. And now they were feeling that they were murdered a second time. Not only did he murder them the first time when he molested them, now he murdered them a second time because now the blame was on them. They caused him to commit suicide. Imagine the pain of a girl who was molested once and now being molested a second time. She is being blamed for his death because he killed himself because he was being humiliated in public. There was even a newspaper that eulogized him and they wrote about him, Zecher Tzadik Livracha. The righteous should be remembered for a blessing. Here you have a person who raped people, raped women and men, and now he's being called a Tzadik. This is where you see how people become victims of a cultish mindset. And that's why it's so important for everyone involved in any form of leadership. You have to have people that you could consult. You have to have mentors. 
the Mishnah, the famous ethics of the father says, you need to have a rabbi, a mentor, a leader who you trust or leaders with whom you could consult on very serious issues. I know sometimes I have very serious dilemmas. I cannot rely on my own judgment because it's all very nice. You know, I, I, I may have good ideas, but ultimately I'm biased. Like every person is biased and I get angry. <laughs> and if I'm acting out of anger and impetuous impulsiveness, I can do the wrong thing. And therefore I have certain individuals whom I trust and I know they can be objective and they're looking for the truth. We're all human. We can all make mistakes, but all we can do is to the best of our ability, open ourselves up to a deeper truth. And sometimes I'll have to ask a few people and hear what they say and listen to people who are not involved and not emotionally involved and then come to a decision. And the decisions are never black and white. It's sometimes very, very complicated and very, very subtle. In some situations, I have to say, I know with my gut, I know in my gut that this is the right thing to say. And to hold back would be an unforgettable crime. When I got emails, when he, when he, when this man in Israel killed himself just a few months ago, and I came out with a lecture, and it went out on YouTube and in Israeli press and in Israeli websites, and there were hundreds of thousands in Israel who watched it, and I got around five or 600 uh, letters or comments from people, including people, somebody wrote to me, you know, I wanted to commit, somebody committed suicide a day after he was killed, one of his victims from shame and hurt. And somebody said, I wanted to kill myself. But then when I heard your video, I realized that somebody understands what we went through. And instead of blaming us, to blaming him, I knew right away that my gut feeling was right. Because generally speaking, we have to remember our key role as leaders is to obliterate our planet from evil and to protect the vulnerable. The moment we lose that, the moment we lose our sense for justice and we camouflage it with spiritual enlightenment and with nice and rosy stuff. But if I am allowing bloodshed, violence, injustice, criminal acts, abuse, molestation, sexual exploitation to happen in my midst, then I have forfeited every right to call myself a Jewish leader. Or any kind of leader. Or any kind of leader, Christian leader, Muslim leader, Buddhist leader, Hindu leader. The first act of leadership okay. is to make a world that is safe, a world in which we don't harm each other, a world in which our children are protected, a yeah. world in which our children will not be hijacked and abducted physically or emotionally. Molestation abducts a soul. I know what it does. When a child is molested, and he or she does not have who to speak to, they're isolated, what happens is the perpetrator has kidnapped their soul, has kidnapped their identity, and they never again feel comfortable in their cell, in their own skin. They create often a fake substitute personality until healing comes. So this is a very, very serious thing. And if we don't stand up to this type of, 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 of to these types of crimes, then well, what, 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 what are we doing with our lives? If I can meditate, you know, I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he said a very in, intense idea. He said, how did exile begin for the Jewish people? It began when Joseph was sold into Egyptian slavery. That's how they ended up in Egypt. And they ultimately became slaves there. And he said, how did Joseph end up in slavery? Because his brothers threw him into a pit and then they sold him as a slave. But he says, that's part of the story. The Bible says 
the one who suggested he should be thrown into a pit was a brother named Reuven. And Reuven had them thrown him into a pit because he wanted to save him. But then they sat down for a meal and he was fasting. He was repenting for something he did with his father and Bilhah years ago, years earlier. And therefore he was meditating in the forest or wherever he was. And he didn't notice when his brother was sold and he came back to the pit, to the cistern, and his brother wasn't there. So the Rebbe said, sometimes exile doesn't begin because of bad people doing bad things. Sometimes it begins from good people doing very holy things. They're fasting, they're meditating, they're in the forest, they're not eating. But he said, when your brother is languishing in the abyss, in the pit, how could you focus on your own perfection? You make sure that that child gets out of the pit. And what that means is that an exile mentality is a mentality where I could start focusing on my own spiritual perfection. But the child is in the abyss. And if I don't see my first and foremost priority to protect those children who are in the abyss, those teenagers who are in the abyss, and to be there for them and to extricate them and help them get out, then ultimately... I'm living ultimately in a very narrow spiritual space because the beginning of spiritual consciousness and redemptive consciousness is the fact that our world and every person in our world deserves to live in a space of peace and tranquility and, and wholeness. Well, there's a very deep conversation going on in the chat and um, my mind is going in a few different directions but uh, maybe you could first speak. I want to. I want to hear from you your vision of the fu- of healing in the future. Maybe the Rebbe's vision for the redemption of humanity. But I also want to ask what many people have asked so far in the chat, which is, what about the leaders of the generation? What about the rabbinic leaders and other spiritual leaders? And um, many people feel that that leadership is not taking responsibility in, in, for for eradicating evil. In fact, in some cases, many cases perpetrating it. I don't know if we're getting into politics, but um, can you speak to that? Sure. I always tell my students and people who listen to my classes, I say, listen, my dear friends, either there's two choices in life, either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. (laughs) We have to make a choice every morning. Either I'm going to be part of the problem, I'm going to be part of the solution. There's an old saying, the three types of people, right? Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who want to know what happened. Every morning we have to make that choice. There are leaders who are inept. There are leaders who are uneducated. There are leaders who are ignorant. There are leaders who are afraid. There are leaders who are just stuck in their comfort zone. There are leaders who are corrupt. So they span they span the full spectrum from ignorance to corruption, from And sometimes people who are just in their own orbit, they don't know about another orbit. Yeah. And and I could sit all day and point a finger at this person or this person or this person, and I could kvetch. Kvetch is a Yiddish word for sighing, and I could discuss how bad this is and how bad that is. But as the Rebbe used to say, one action in the positive direction is superior to a thousand sighs. Tova pula achat me'elefan achat. If there's one child I can save, if there's one teenager I can be a comforting heart for, if there's one woman, one man struggling, and my embrace can make all the difference, that becomes my greatest priority. We live in a generation today where every single one of us can exercise leadership. Every person. 
whether it's through your money, through your blog, through your website, through your influence, through your mouth, through your mind, through your work. Every person, every person has leadership opportunities today. Every single one of us. So therefore, I say to each and every one of us, yes, are there people from whom we expect better behavior and we're not seeing it? Absolutely. But what's my response going to be? What will my response be? So I should now get into a depression. I should resign and surrender to mediocrity. I should say, he's not doing anything. Why should I do anything? Who am I? That's not What hope path. is there? What hope is there when the leaders aren't? Our yeah. path is you be the leader. You be the leader. You have a circle of friends. You have a circle of influence. You have somebody you can touch. You be the leader. And you know what happens? We live today in a world where there is a ripple effect. We are organically connected. When there's a flow of consciousness in one space, it has a ripple effect on other places. So instead of focusing on the negativity and how imprisoned we all are and how hopeless the situation is, the real perspective, the real way to do it is, you know what? Let me make a change in my body, in my home, in my community, in my group, in my WhatsApp chat. Let me make change. And the first place I want to make changes in my own brain. <laughs> yeah. It always begins in my own brain. You know, it's easy to have courage for everybody else. What about, am I confronting my own traumas? Are you confronting your own traumas? Am I confronting my own fears? I want all the leaders to confront their fears. Am I confronting my fears? Am I working on myself every day? If I'm not authentically working on myself every day, I'm not going to change anybody. Carl Jung said it brilliantly. He said as follows, you will only change other people to the effect and to the point that you're ready to change yourself. Mm. How true is that? I will only change other people to the degree that I'm ready to change myself. It's very easy for me to get up at a lecture. Rabbi, why are we going to let everybody change? But when it comes to my own comfort zone, oh, no, I'm not changing. I'm stuck in my quagmire. This is who I am. I'm not changing anybody. Yeah. So it always begins with very a very internal process. And when you go through that process, you will immediately see people will listen to you in a different way. They will sense your authenticity. So they true. will sense your humility. And you know what? We create, that's how we create change. One person, another person. You know, and that, that makes real differences. And ultimately the leaders in positions of leadership, they'll also listen. And they'll also be impacted. And they'll also be affected. So don't resign, don't despair, rather become that change that you're looking to create in others, become that change, become that miracle that you want to see outside of you, you become that miracle. This is amazing and it fits so much that I'd love to move into healing and the future and the Rebbe's vision, the Torah's vision of the future. I just want to quickly say, you know, this whole thing about decentralization, that's obviously part of it. And the idea that, you know, the, that is talked about in Gemara, wherever else the, the leaders of the faces will be like the faces will have faces like the faces of dogs. You know, all this is, all seems to be in order to promote that light coming from the inside. Like you said in the beginning, that we're all here to be channels for the for prophetic consciousness. So uh, if you could just, you know, 
maybe weave some of this together into that. Sure. What is the vision? What's the Rebbe's mission? What's our mission? What's happening now? Where are we going and how do sure. we... Sure, right, right before our conversation, literally a few minutes before, I was having a very intimate conversation with a very well-known energy healer in Israel. And he's visiting now America. So we were having a schmooze, a chat, a conversation. And he shared something very interesting with me. He said, you know, 35 years ago, I was, he's, he's, he's really skilled at what he does. And he's helped a lot of people. I know from personal experience and friends and relatives. And he said, 35 years ago, you know, I was feeling people's energies and I was trying to help them. And I would bring up some topics. And most people would say, oh, we're not going there. He says, today? I bring up something and everybody's like, bring it on. He says, everybody wants to talk. So I said, what happened? And he said, it seems to me that God wants us to cleanse. God wants us to bring up all the toxicity so that we can eradicate it and we can transform it. And I think, I think there's something very authentic about that. Let me just uh, put this on vibrate. I think, Shifra, there's something very authentic about that. You know, it's very easy, again, when somebody is short-sighted or ignorant to criticize our generation. What are the youth upset about? What is everybody traumatized about? Come on, you have it much better than your parents and your grandparents, your great-grandparents. And in many ways, that's true. I mean, my great-grandparents, my grandparents, if I think about how they grew up and the circumstances they grew up in, you know, we have it so much better on so many different levels. And yet we see that today things are coming up that have never come up before, especially among the young people. And you could say, oh, it's technology and it's the internet and they're spoiled and they're rotten and they're entitled. And I'm sure those factors play a role and we have to address all those factors, but there's also something much more fundamental. And that is we are living in the dawn of redemptive consciousness. And in the dawn of redemptive consciousness, we are summoned to heal. Because you cannot have intimacy without healing. Intimacy means really into me see, into me see. And for that, I have to be really comfortable with myself. And if I am, if I am dominated and controlled by toxicity and by deep fear, especially unconscious fear, How can I be comfortable with myself? Most of my life is about coping mechanisms. Most of my life is about covering up, (laughs) covering up my true self. So in our generation, God is asking of us and literally helping us bring our problems to the fore. There was an alcoholic Jew who I grew up with. We called him Zalman the Shikr, Zalman the Drunk. I remember him. Remember him? Yes. Drink Crown Royal, uh, may his soul rest in peace. He was a very deep guy, but he had an issue with alcohol. And he told me a lot of interesting insights. And he once told me, he said, you know, we drink alcohol, he says, to drown our sorrow. Little do we realize that our sorrow floats. And in many ways, God has allowed our trauma to float. We don't have the mechanism that our parents had to suppress it. And some people are getting very upset. Come on, suppress it, suppress, suppress, suppress. <laughs> it's a great wow. way of dealing with it. Suppress, oppress, but just get rid of it. Yeah. Oh, no more, no more. It's all coming out. It's coming out in kids. It's coming out in teenagers. It's coming out in young adults. It's coming out in elderly people. It's coming out in marriages. Why? So that we can heal. So that we can have intimacy. Intimacy with ourselves. Intimacy 
with our loved ones, intimacy with God, intimacy with the world. There's no intimacy without wholeness. And therefore, we are now being exposed to all of our holes, H-O-L-E-S, so that we can turn our holes into wholeness. We can transform our darkness into light. We can take our vulnerability and our difficult experiences and turn them into catalysts for deeper relationships. The way out of pain is through pain. It's painful because going through pain is painful. We don't want to experience the pain. But if we have the courage to travel through that pain, we can come out of the pain. And not only come out of it, we can turn around the pain. And that requires a lot of vulnerability. And that's what I'm feeling everywhere. I have the privilege of lecturing all over the world, pre-corona, during corona via Zoom, and now post-corona via Zoom. And again, travel has resumed. I have visited probably 700 communities around the world, Jewish and non-Jewish communities. And wherever I go, I see the fire in people's eyes when you speak about the courage that we need in our generation to confront everything, not to be afraid of our demons, of our skeletons, of our ghosts, of our dark secrets. We don't need to anymore. We don't need to, and therefore we can't. Because in Jewish spirituality, we're taught if something is not necessary anymore, then it's not allowed anymore. Something if it's necessary, it. then you have the mechanism. It's not necessary. We can heal. So therefore, God says, I don't want you to hide anything. Bring it up. Bring it up. Don't be afraid. And it's being brought up, especially being brought up by our children who are struggling. They are the ones, the delicate ones, the delicate ones who... Uh, You know, they may not be dandelions, they may be orchids, but in their delicate skins and delicate souls, they're carrying the bruises. What's that line of Simon and Garfunkel in the boxer? Um, I carry every bruise. They carry the bruises and the traumas of thousands of years. And they are lifting up a mirror to all of us and telling us, look deeper into yourself. Heal the dysfunction. Heal your marriages. Heal yourself. Stop pointing fingers and blaming your wife, blaming your husband, blaming this one, blaming that one. Can you look deep into yourself and say, what's the role that I play in this because of my own brokenness? And when we can do that, an extraordinary new wave of healing will overtake all of us, our families, our personal lives, our homes, and the world. It's already happening. You can feel it in the air unless you're blind and deaf. <laughs> you, can, you can literally feel it, feel it in the air. You know, I, I, I listen to speeches. I listen to speeches. There's two types of speeches that I hear. There's the speeches that keep on telling people what to do and how bad they are. And I see everybody shutting down, everybody shutting down. And then there are speeches where people speak from the heart about how powerful we are. Yeah. And about how broken we are, but how whole we are. And everybody comes to life. Everybody is in. Nobody shuts down. And you realize in Judaism, there's a term called Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination. Every generation has its evil inclination. I have learned that the evil inclination today is the notion that I'm a broken person. People are not evil today. They're broken. And my belief that I'm essentially broken, that is my evil inclination. 
And when I can help myself and others find our wholeness and become aware of our brokenness as a springboard to help us achieve our wholeness, you'll see there's not a vestige of evil in people. There's infinite goodness in them. It's amazing. It's miraculous when you get when people kind of peel down to that level. All you see is something so exquisite. It's true. Yeah. So um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but well, I do, but I won't. But um, it, I'm just want, I'm just moved to ask you if you started out talking about the Rebbe when the Rebbe took the leadership, he expressed a messianic vision, a redemptive vision, right? And then you, as someone who was memorizing from the inside and processing everything through your brain. um, You know, that must've been very woven into your worldview in very special ways. So looking at from start to finish, when the Rebbe declared this vision, what was it? How would you express it? And then from the Rebbe's teachings, how did you see that unfold? And then where we are now, what is our piece? And and where are we in that? To be honest, as I told you, I was born in 1972. And when I joined a team of, of oral scribes, these was this was decades. <laughs> it was it was the late the mid mid late nineteen eighties and the early nineteen nineties. And those last few years, the Rebbe spoke eloquently, beautifully, and very, very inspiringly about a new wave of energy that has descended upon our world. He spoke frequently how people have to realize how they are infinite, how powerful they are, how each one of us is an ambassador of God in this world. He did not tolerate any more negative language about people. Throughout all of his leadership, he did not like negative language, but especially in those later years, he felt that the language today is showing people how one they are with God, how whole they are, how powerful they are, how good they are how sacred they are, how transcendent they are, how each one of us is essentially infinite consciousness having a finite experience. He could not tolerate when people define themselves as finite. He he saw every person as an infinite derivative of divine infinite consciousness being manifested through a finite experience. Like it's almost you're on a journey. Infinity is having a journey through the finite world. And all of your experiences is basically the infinite going through this journey and learning from its experiences how to transform the finite into the infinite. But as a young teenager and a young adult transcribing all these talks, I do have to say that I didn't always experience what he was saying in a visceral fashion or even a mature fashion. I was more like a tape recorder. (laughs) <laughs> maybe a little embarrassing to say, you know, a tape recorder, in those days it was a tape recorder, today it's your uh, your MP3 or your phone, whatever your recording is, doesn't have to really understand. It just has to record. And that's really what I saw. I would, I would listen to the Rebbe. I heard what he was saying. I understood, I think, a little bit of what he was saying, but most importantly, as I repeated it and I transcribed it. It took me many, many years and my own journey and my own learning from so many great people and my own life's experiences to really go back to those words that I heard and transcribed and re-experience them in a much deeper and more mature and more visceral fashion. There's a famous expression in the Talmud that it takes 40 years for a student to truly internalize the words that he heard from his master 40 years ago. And when I read that piece in the Talmud as a teenager, I never really understood it. I said, why? If the teacher explains himself, why can't the student understand? 
Today I understand exactly what it means. Sometimes it can take decades till you really, really grasp what your teacher was saying. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, I felt, I feel today, just sensed and he could see this wave of consciousness that's waiting to descend upon humanity, but we have to be open to it. You know, I can give you the most amazing information that can heal your life, or you can give me, but if I'm not open to it, you know, sometimes you're sitting in the office of a therapist and he can give you the most brilliant advice, but if you're not open to it, it's worthless. It's meaningless. The Rebbe used to use an expression in the last years, 91, 92, he would say, it's all present. We just have to open our eyes. I didn't understand. What does what it mean to open my eyes? Whose eyes are closed? Today, I completely understand. It's exactly the description of what trauma is. Trauma means you can be in the presence of greatness. You can be in the midst of prosperity. You can be in the most loving relationship. But your tools don't allow you to perceive it. Mm. Because parts of my brain are shut down. That's what active trauma is. I am in a place where I cannot perceive my goodness. I cannot perceive your goodness. I cannot perceive the paradise I'm in. The beautiful, beautiful line in the Zohar, in the foundational book of Jewish Kabbalah of mysticism, the Bible says he expelled him from the Garden of Eden, from paradise. And the Zohar says, who expelled whom? Did God expel Adam? Or did Adam expel God? And the answer of the Zohar is, it's not that God expelled Adam and Eve from paradise. Adam and Eve, when they ate from the tree of self-consciousness of ego, they expelled God from the paradise, which means it's all an issue of perspective. Trauma means certain parts of me are shut down. I cannot experience my life. So the Rebbe kept on using the words. Almost every Shabbat, every Saturday, he would say, open your eyes. Cleanse your perception. Cleanse the doors of perception so everything can appear as is. But truthfully, I knew what he said. I heard it. I wrote it down. I said it over. I would repeat his words. Then there was a public broadcast Saturday night to hundreds of communities around the world, and I would repeat his words. But today, I just think I understand it, and I get it in a much more visceral way, I'm sure. As time progresses, I'll understand it even better. What I'm understanding is that there's really an opportunity today for all of us, and it's a calling. I have to open my eyes. And for each and every one of us, that may mean something else, but for all of us, it means the same thing. I have to realize that it's possible that I am sitting literally with closed eyes. I am living in a world, but I am not seeing the reality inside of me or around me. Helen Keller, the legendary Helen Keller once said, And she could say it. The only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is lacking vision. Wow. You know? So that's what he was saying. Can you open your eyes? I don't mean physically. Thank God we can see. But to have that vision, to have that expansive consciousness of who we are, who we can be, and who we can inspire everyone around us to be. And you'll notice that the opportunities today are historic. The last question then, um, what I hear you saying that the core of exile of Gullis is trauma and unconscious trauma and the core of Geula is healing and particularly healing of trauma. So is there, do you have, a, if you would, if someone would come to you and say, and several people have asked me this already, so 
if, if someone would come to you and say, what is, how do I bring this transcendent consciousness? How do I bring this deep healing? How do I bring this redemptive vision? Is it only, it's not, obviously it's not only trauma work, learning, you know, learning the Torah of the Rebbe and other, how, what, what's your prescription? And we, you're the finale speaker here. So yeah, we'll leave everybody Excellent with. Excellent question. So the first thing is, we have to realize today that God has gifted our generation with a tremendous amount of models of healing, tremendous of many models that did not exist till a few years ago. Obviously, history is always progressing and there's more technology and more science and more psychological awareness. But literally in recent years, so much awareness has been brought to the fore in the area of healing that I say to everybody, if you're struggling, if you're miserable, if you're depressed, if you're struggling with mental illness, with mental challenges, with deep anxiety, with deep stress, with, with profound pain and aggravation, or other characteristics that make you feel that your life is limiting and limited and miserable, don't despair. There are unbelievable amounts of models of, models of healing today, from talk therapy to somatic therapy to energy therapy to various alternative methods, including psychedelics for trauma healing with professionals, doctors, and therapists. God has gifted our generation with tremendous opportunities for self-discovery and for healing. And many of us are struggling with a lot. Realize that there's a lot of help out there. Explore. Don't give up. Make sure you have a support system. Make sure you're speaking to real experts, to people who know what's going on. Because there's incredible, incredible work today, including even the tremendous research about so much of what we call mental illness, of how rooted it is in trauma, or at least parts of it are rooted in trauma, which means there is so much hope for many of us who were just thought to have chemical imbalances. There's nothing to do. Just medicate them, and that's it. Now, medication can save lives, and sometimes we need it very much. But to understand how expansive the opportunities are today for a holistic approach, which from a Jewish perspective is so uh, redemptive oriented because it basically assumes that at our core, at our core, we're good. We're good. We don't have to recreate ourselves. You don't have to become a good person. You're a piece of God. You're good. You're, you're perfect. You're divine. You're sacred. You're unlimited. You're creative. You're charming. You're fun. You're confident. You're happy. However, our goodness, in the words of the famous Tanya, are in exile. Our godliness could be in exile. And we have these bodyguards and these protectors that don't allow us access. And even they are trying to help us and protect us. <laughs> Uh, the Alter Rebbe says that even the ego is really here to protect us. And, 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 and then sometimes you don't have to destroy ego, just have to tell your ego you did your job. Now, now, somebody once gave a brilliant metaphor, you know, the egg. My wife actually showed it to me this morning. I, I don't know who the author is, but it's a wonderful metaphor. You know, the egg is so important to protect the chick that's developing in the egg. Without that eggshell, the chick would never be able to grow and survive. But once she's ready to hatch, if you don't crack open that shell, yeah. it's going to die. It's going to suffocate. And that's what the ego is. The ego is also protecting us, mm. but it's a shell. We have to open ourselves up. So we live in this generation where this method 
of tuning into your infinite self is the calling of the hour. For many of us, that includes healing processes. For all of us, it includes learning the divine blueprint of life called the Torah, especially the parts of Torah, which the Rebbe would call Pnimiyasa Torah, the soul of Torah, the Torah that deals with redemptive consciousness, the Torah that explores the infinity of the being, the infinity of the world, the organic connection of all of us and all of nature and the whole planet and the whole cosmos, and the fact that God is channeled through each and every one of us. Another major component in this work is the element of tzedakah, the element of helping people through physical charity, through emotional charity, being involved, being in a position of leadership. That's the other call of the hour. We heal ourselves when we help others heal. Every one of us can be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope. That's what it means to be an ambassador, to be a leader. These are some of the things that I think each of us can get involved in in order to help facilitate this energy. Beautiful and perfectly summed up. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody's taking it to heart. And um, Replay Week starts now, starts starts now. So share with your friends. Keep the rest of your questions for our panel on Wednesday. Thank you so much, Rabbi Yy. Thank you, Shifra. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for the privilege. And God bless you all. Thank you. Amen. Amen. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.